I go down every morning now to milk. It's just Mama and Razzie. Everyone else is gone. Ten days ago, I packed the two young billies into a large cage, and Clifton and I drove to the Saturday Livestock Auction. It's a small animal auction. About half an hour from here, higher in the mountains, on a side road. It's held in a big barn with rows of chairs lined up inside. The owner and his son are the auctioneers. His daughter manages the office. His wife handles a food stand and everything else. Normally, there's quite a crowd. The first time I went, there were cages of chickens, all kinds lined up through the barn and out the door, outside almost as far as their house. Don't make any crazy moves, said Clifton to me that time. You see all these people? Half of them are packing heat, and very few have concealed carry permits. I could see and feel that this was Appalachia. The auction starts with, well, junk. Saw blades, doors, pots, tools, you name it, outside the barn. If you want to buy or sell anything, you register and get a piece of paper with your number on it. Yes, Christie's of Western North Carolina. Then they do all the chickens, then the goats. So we drive in, we look, we don't see a lot of cars. In fact, we don't see any cars. This is a heck of a note, says Clifton. We drive up next to the house and the owner's wife comes out, drying her hands on her apron. Oh, didn't you hear? We only have the auction on the first Saturday of every month now. So sorry, did you have a long drive? Um, maybe half an hour. In a cell, she looks in the back. A pair of billies, weathers. Well, let me check with my husband. Maybe he'll buy them. So we drove up after her to the woodworking shop that the owner has in another barn. Clifton has known this guy for years. They talk for a while before we get down to business. He tells us that his daughter, the office manager, has just been diagnosed with a relapse of breast cancer. It's spread now. That is sad news. We walk over to look at the goats. That La Mancha, Razzie's kid, is small. Not much meat on him. And that Sonnen doesn't have much more. He was telling me the bar was low. So how much do you want for him? I didn't know. I thought I stewed for a minute, told him a price. He thought, said he'd pay me $10 less a piece. Can you come up five bucks each? I don't even want to pay what I offered you. So, that was it. I accepted. He reached into his wallet for cash. I unloaded the goats and Clifton and I headed home. I bet you thought we'd be there a lot longer, he said. Yeah, I also thought I'd have more money in my wallet. Yeah, that's how it goes. At least you don't have to drive back next Saturday. You're right about that. Well... I saved $5 a head auction fee, and I didn't have to buy Clifton lunch. It wasn't late enough. Hello, this is Ernie Johnson, founder of Anashira. My sponsor, Anashira, will be happy with me this week. They tell me regularly, talk about your goats. That's what people want to hear about. I tell them, 
You know, I hear you, but there's not that much interesting news about a goat. I do the best I can. Thanks for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode of Stories from Anashira. inviting me to Paris for Christmas when we parted in the last episode. It was from Maria. She had a friend who had a flat off the most elegant avenue in Paris, the Avenue Foch. Well, I'd probably never get a chance again to see an apartment like that, and I really wanted to see Paris, so I decided to go. I didn't have any dress clothes. I figured I wouldn't need any anyway. I had some money saved from my job as a mover and from the items that Jose and I had managed to sell. So I had to advise Maria that I'd be in Paris. I went to send her a telegram. Not one to waste money, I sent a message to her. Coming. Stop. Ernie. No need for any more. I finished my classes and took a small suitcase to Bahnhof Zoo and caught a train to Paris. It was frigid and snowing heavily when I left. The weather warmed up slowly as the train headed west. When we arrived in Paris, about 12 hours later, it was cold and rainy, but not frigid. I arrived at the Gare du Nord station and changed uh, some marks into French francs. Then I found a metro station, walked down, and studied the map. Boy, I found where I wanted to go and a metro station near it. Thank God I only had to transfer once. I bought a couple of metro tickets. My French was pretty bad, but I muddled through the transaction. I walked to the turnstile, slipped in my ticket, and walked down below ground. It was warmer, and the smell? Well, it was a scent that is the same in every below-ground metro station I've been in in Paris. Not perfume, not a smell of food, not an exhaust smell, not a smell of nature, but a mix of all of those. I love that smell, and I always have. I had to change trains at a small station named Stalingrad. Oh, great. I hope that's not an omen. I figured out how to get to the correct line and headed in the direction Port Dauphine, which was also my stop, the last stop. I couldn't miss it. I felt almost as if I knew what I was doing. I checked and rechecked the map on the wall of the car. The sound was different, sort of a swoosh, and the train made good time. It stopped at the end of the line. I got out and followed the few people left to the stairs, that led to the exit. I walked up to the light. It was one of the few stations with the original entrance designed by Hector Guimard with the sign Metropolitaine over the striking ornamented entrance. I looked and I could see the Eiffel Tower. Oh my. I found the street that I was headed to and the address. It was just past the embassy of Nicaragua. Oh boy, more Latinos, I thought. 
So I went up to the building. I found you just don't walk in the door like you do here. Or you don't push a button that rings the apartment. Oh, not in that neighborhood. You have to deal with a human unlike anyone I'd ever met. A person called a concierge. This guy came out of a room like a spider. He seemed to speak no language other than French and pretended for the longest time not to understand a single word I said. After a while, he did call the apartment and Maria came down. She and he spoke and finally she got him to permit me to go up to the apartment. Had to leave my suitcase there. I had thought I'd be staying in some hoity-toity flat in this elegant neighborhood, but that didn't happen. I didn't even get to see the flat. I made it up to the front door and into the entrance hall. Maria stopped me there. We can't stay here. The parents aren't here, but they're coming back today. We have to find a hotel. Hotel? I told Maria, there's no hotel in my budget. She said not to worry. She had some money. Okay. She suggested we head to the left bank, the Latin Quarter. It's cheaper. We'll find some place there. So off we went. She had a large suitcase and a bunch of other stuff. We walked down to the same metro station. Hopped onto a train, connected once, and got out at the Saint-Michel-Notre-Dame station. Walked upstairs. Now, this was a busy, wild corner. Cafes, stores, people, wide, wide sidewalks, traffic. I stood there and turned around, slowly. This your first time in Paris, she asked. Yeah, I stopped here in a bus for about a half hour two years ago. So what do you think? I like it. Actually, I'm overwhelmed. Do you think we could sit down and have a coffee? There was a brasserie in front of us. La Fontaine Saint-Michel. I still remember it. So we sat down. I had an espresso. Delicious. Fresh. So what do I ask for? Un café. That's it? Well, s'il vous plaît, un café. Well, now I was set. Un café, s'il vous plaît. I could do that. We sat for a while. I soaked it in. We walked around the corner and up a small street named Rue de la Harpe, Harp Street. There was a small hotel about six stories tall. Small rooms. The price was okay for Maria. Included breakfast. So we get a room, top floor, the cheapest. Our view was of the roofs of the Latin Quarter on the left bank of the Seine. So we walked a lot. Five minutes from Notre Dame, a little more to the Sorbonne, a little further to the famous Pont Neuf. Before leaving Fresno, I'd been going out with a girl who had left to attend the Sorbonne the same time I left for Paso. I would have liked to see her, but I didn't want any complications. Bonne day, as they say over there. So what were my impressions? First, the food. Oh my God, the croissant, the baguette, a simple sliced baguette with ham and cheese, the rotisserie chicken, poulet roti from heaven, served with pommes frites. Ah, those fries. 
I could go on for an hour, but you get the idea. I love walking and seeing those beautiful buildings and sitting in the Luxembourg Gardens and reading the International Herald Tribune. And I really love those French women. Oh, my God. And they're funny. Those women, they'll stare right at a guy. They'll look at you. I never see that in this country. Mostly women ignore you. I don't know. Maybe I looked a little different over there. I don't think it was me. But you'll call me crazy when I tell you what my favorite thing was. There was a small cinema on the Rue de la Harpe. It had a line outside it every night. We walked by. Easy Rider is playing. I wanted to see that movie, I told Maria. It hadn't gotten to Fresno when I left. So we lined up and went to see it after dinner. Oh my, it was like an anthem to my generation. A couple of wild, hippie-looking-like guys seeking freedom. They see the best and the worst of our country. The music was the best. Steppenwolf, The Birds, Joe Cocker, Jimi Hendrix, and on and on and on. Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, they were the perfect characters. But Jack Nicholson, he was outrageous. He had one of the great lines from any movie I know. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I don't know what's going on with it. I can't tell you how many times I've said that in the past few years. You know, Don, this used to be a hell of a good country. We get out of that cinema, and I had to sit down and just chill for a while. So we went back the next night and watched it again, and I was impacted just as much. Oh, and the movies in France are generally not dubbed. They're subtitled, so you can get into a film like it's meant to be. So I stayed a little over a week and say, I need to get back. Maria says, I'm thinking of moving to West Berlin and going to the Goethe Institute there. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. I'd had a good time in Paris. She liked to eat, loved the movies, and she was very generous. Do you think I could stay with you for a while while I find a place to live? Sure. You remember how small my room is, right? She said it didn't bother her. So I caught a train back to Berlin and Maria returned to Passau. Some days later, she sends another telegram. She's on her way. I meet her at Bahnhof Zoo. Man, she had some suitcases. Maybe we better take a taxi. It's cold and windy and snowing. So we got to Sigmundshofen, hauled that stuff up to my floor. With some care, we could stack it in places so we could make it from my door to my desk and to the bed. Don't worry, I'm going to find a room tomorrow when I sign up at the Goethe Institute, she says. That'll be fine. So she came back the next day and had found a room. We moved most of her stuff over there, but she still stayed with me. After a week or so, I realized she didn't plan on moving to that room. So, Maria, if you're not going to stay in that room, why waste your money? If my dad knew I was staying here, he'd go wild. He's not much about me having a serious thing with a guy. That's why he sent me here to Germany. 
Oh, my. And he doesn't like Americans much. Oh, boy. And he really doesn't like hippies at all. Wow. So I need an address for my mail and in case anyone should come over for a visit. Okay. Hey, it was her money. The building was heated by a radiator. Water heated by furnaces burning coal. No matter how cold it got outside, it was hot in the room. Too hot for me to sleep. So I slept with this window open. Remember the window was a glass door that opened to the great outdoors. I didn't have blankets. I had a German down comforter. That thing was warm. They called it a poof. So one night, I heard Marie in the middle of the night. We've been hit with a blizzard. About a foot of snow on the end of the bed. It had blown through the window. I hadn't even noticed. Okay, I'll shut the door a little. But I have to leave it at least six inches open or I'll suffocate in here. A couple of weeks later, a friend of mine, a guy named Steve, American, says, Hey, Ernie, take a few days off and come with me to London. Why are you going to London? I bought an old VW Beetle for my brother. He's going to school there. He's paying for gas and the ferry. Come with me. We can spend a few days in London. Then I'm going to stay with him for a while. You can hitchhike back. No problem. I thought about it. I'd never been to London. It seemed like a wild plan. Sure, Steve, let's go. We left a few days later. I took what cash I had. We set out in an old VW Bug, maybe 15 years old. But it ran okay. It was a cold trip, midwinter, and this winter was brutal. The heater in that Bug wasn't worth a hoot. We kept our overcoats and gloves on until we hit the coast. We got a ferry, Calais to Folkestone. And boy, a warm big cabin. But the coffee was not potable. We get to Folkestone and drive into London. Steve had found a house in Lewisham that had a room we could rent, and they gave us breakfast. It took him a while to find it. No navigators in those days. We were going to stay for two nights. We ate a fair amount of fish and chips bought on the street. The first time I ate them, they served them in a cone of newspapers. Oh, gross, that's pretty disgusting newspaper, I said. Steve was laughing. He thought I was hilarious. Look inside, he said. I saw that the fish and chips were wrapped in some kind of wax paper with layers of newspaper outside for insulation. Oh, that's better. We splashed lots of malt vinegar on the fish. Hot, fresh, delicious, and cheap. We caught the bus on our second night to Leicester Square. We wanted to see the movie MASH. It had just been released. A realistic satire on, the, on a mobile hospital unit in the Korean War. Directed by Robert Altman. Although we had no idea who Altman was. It was his first big movie. Huge, beautiful cinema. Every seat was like a loge. You could take in beer and other drinks. Man, this was not Fresno. The film was outrageous. A huge cast. Original music. The song, Suicide is Painless, was written by Altman's 14-year-old son, Mike. 
I could see clearly that these Englishmen love film almost as much as they love good fish and chips. I headed home with very little money. I had enough for the ferry back to Calais, and I bought a baguette, which I nursed for a couple of days. I hitchhiked and did fairly well until I got to Germany. I'm riding along with a guy. I thought I was going to Hanover on the Autobahn number two and then on to Berlin. He says, Ich muss Benzin kaufen. I gotta buy some gas. And he pulls off an exit near the small town of Reda. He gets off the Autobahn and stops at a Tankstelle and stops at a pump. He tells me, It'd be a good time to visit the bathroom. The weather's miserable, temperatures dropping, high winds, snow blowing sideways. So I go to the bathroom when I get out and head for the car. It's gone. Are you kidding me? I see my small bag on the ground next to the pump. That son of a gun, he has dumped me here. I'm not even in a good spot to hitch a ride. It's late, dark. I'm not even on the Autobahn entrance. I walk up the road to find a better spot. Nothing. The drivers can barely see me through the snow. I get cold and then colder. I sit down under an underpass for a minute to rest. I wake up. I've been sleeping. I feel warm. I have little feeling in my hands and feet. Uh Uh-oh. If I don't get going... I just freeze to death here, I say to myself. I start walking. I walk down the road and see a sign. Polizei, police, with an arrow. Oh, maybe they can help. I walk a couple of hundred meters and I see another sign signaling a right turn. Man, I'm hungry. That baguette is long gone. Thirsty and shivering. My teeth are chattering. I walk about a 1,000, 1,400 meters, and I see a big station. I walk in, shaking and confused. The policeman on duty says, Was wollen Sie denn? What do you want? I explain that I'm a student trying to hitchhike back to West Berlin for my classes. I tell him I'd been dropped in the middle of nowhere. What do you want me to do? Well... You could take me to a Tankstelle on the Autobahn and help me get a ride. Or you could let me sleep in one of your cells for the night. I promise you, if you send me back out in that weather, you'll find my corpse sometime tomorrow and have to deal with that. He looks at me again more carefully. Sind Sie Deutscher? Are you German? Nein, ich bin Ami. No, American. He looks at me closely. A small smile appears on his face. Do you have any ID? I hand him my passport and my student ID. He told me to go wash up. I must have looked pretty bad. And he says, I'll see what I can do. Are all you Americans this crazy? No, there are some even crazier. Thinking of those characters in Easy Rider. I came back a few minutes later and he said, You're in luck. A trucker I know will stop by in Reda. Come on, you need something to eat. We went to a late night Gaststätte and he bought me a bowl of soup and a perchin with ham. I tried not to wolf it down. Here, 
He handed me a two-mark piece. Nice guy. This trucker came by and the policeman gave me his hand before I jumped up in the cab. Now, Herr Jonsson, viel Glück. I wish you luck, Mr. Jonsson. Please don't come back to Reda. I said hello and thanked the driver and fell fast asleep. I woke up at the East German border and then fell asleep again. We got through the crossing into West Berlin and he dropped me off at an S-Bahn station and I made it home. Well, I had not enjoyed sitting on the side of the road without a single mark to my name, so I decided to find some more work. I went to my buddy, Jose, the Spaniard, for advice. Jose, I need to get some kind of a job with a few more hours. He looked at me, stared some more. What? You don't have a work permit, right? Yeah, you know that. He got up and reached in his pocket. He took out a card, a piece of ID, and stared at it. Stared at me. Stared at the document. You know, Ernesto, you look like this. And he handed me the card. It was his West Berlin Arbeitserlaubnis, his work permit. I looked at the photo. I bore some resemblance to that photo. I had long hair, blonde, eyes, a forehead. Let's go tomorrow to the student placement office. You can register as me, Jose Otero. Okay, sounds great. So we went to the uni, the university, the next day and checked job postings. Here's one, he says. Teppich Reinigung, carpet cleaning. High-value Eastern carpets, Aga Indian, Bidyar Persian, Turkish Tabriz, Unsovaita, etc. I don't know anything about these rugs, I said. That's okay. He says no experience required. Oh, man. I went up to the window, presented myself as Jose Otero, and sat up an interview. Jose encouraged me. Just remember... You are Jose at this job. So I took his ID, went to meet with the owner. It was a small business, hand-cleaning valuable eastern rugs. He showed me several that were drying. Herr Gross was the owner. This rug is a Tabriz rug from Persia. It has one million hand-tied knots of silk per square meter. It was about 12 foot by 8 foot. Its value is approximately half a million West Marks. Oh my God, that would be about 125,000 US dollars. He explained, all of the rugs are valuable, many antiques. He walked me through the process. Vacuum the top with a powerful machine. Flip the rug and repeat this over. Over a screen, much dirt and dust fell through. Might have to do it a few times. Then a bath and light shampoo in a special pool. Then sweep off the liquid. Then a rinse. Brush it off. A second rinse. Brush it off. Then the rug was hung on a roller and rinsed with a hose, then laid out and dried with a powerful wet vacuum, then brushed off again, then hung on a large roller to dry over warm forced air. Ah, a laborious process. He says, Herr Otero, you ready to give it a try? 
this rug isn't worth much. Work on it. So I worked. He corrected me. Worked. Was corrected. It was high stress with him standing there. I went in four days a week, part of a day. After about six days, he let me work alone on the least valuable rugs. It took me much longer than it took Herr Gross. He didn't seem to care much. I was deeply focused when I noticed someone calling. Herr Otero. Herr Otero. Herr Otero. Oh, yeah, yeah. To my light, Herr Gross. Ich bin ein bisschen schwerhörig. Sorry, Mr. Gross. I'm a little hard of hearing. I got to pay better attention. Eventually, I was given more valuable rugs to work on. And Mr. Gross didn't have to check up on me frequently. And eventually, he'd offer me a schnapps at the end of the day. And he paid me in cash every Friday. And good, hard D-marks. I worked there for months. But he never stopped speaking to me in a loud voice. Even if we were delivering a large rug to its owner, it would be, Hey, Otero, wir gehen gerade aus. Or, Hey, Otero, warten Sie bitte einen Moment. And he never called me Jose, always Herr Otero. And I never called him Jörg, always Herr Gross. It was funny. Well, not really. My friends who knew of this charade would call me Herr Otero as a joke. I'd hear Fritz Vesalo calling me from the end of the hallway. Herr Otero, Herr Otero, wohin gehen wir heute Abend? Herr Otero, where are we going tonight? So now I had some cash. I continued my classes, although it was a fairly light academic load. I did have a very active social calendar, though. Soon after that, Maria invited me out to dinner. Have you ever had paella? No, what's paella? It's a Spanish rice. Immediately, I thought of my meals in the school cafeteria as a kid. They'd serve some plate of rice with tomato sauce in it, maybe some peas, and called it Spanish rice. Oh, I used to eat that in school. I'm not a big fan. Not that dish, Ernie. Paella is a classic Spanish dish. It originated in Valencia, on the coast. Let's go. I've heard of a little place that has excellent food. So we took the S-Bahn. It was to a rundown neighborhood. No Guy Laroche, Yves Saint Laurent, or Emilio Pucci stores here. We went to a building with a small sign out front. La Caleta, the creek. Well, that's a nice name. We went in. The place was small, maybe six tables. No one else there. I could smell olive oil, shrimp, garlic, sausage. Fresh, really good smell. Maria and the owner had a conversation. His wife came out with a bottle of red wine. It's from my country, she said, and poured several glasses. I was no wine expert, but this was delicious. So we're going to have a real Spanish paella, nothing else. Well, maybe some bread and some sausage. So we ate bread, a type of Spanish baguette, Sliced sausages, some olives, some small pickled whitefish, boquerones, she said, fresh pickled anchovies. 
Finally, the paella arrived in a large, round, flat pan. Oh my goodness, light, fluffy, yellowish rice filled with large shrimps, mussels, rings of calamar, squid, with red pepper, pieces of chicken. The sum was much more than all of its parts. The special ingredient, saffron. Saffron from Persia. It's the stigma and the styles from the flower, crocus sativus, the saffron crocus. It gives paella its yellow color and its unique subtle taste. Today you can find saffron on Amazon for about $200 an ounce, but it's probably adulterated. I had never eaten anything like this. I ate and I ate and the owner came over frequently to share a glass of wine and to see how we were doing. If this is Spain, I must go there. Soon, I said to him. Oh boy, he had a big smile on his face. Oh, you will only find authentic paella in Valencia, but if you love paella, you will love Spain. We left, weaved our way to the Espan and home. Too much paella, too many toasts. But I knew I had to see Spain and eat there. We'll wait a while for that. So, 10 days ago, I get home from the auction and I went down that afternoon to milk the goats. I expected them to be sad and depressed as I was. It was quiet in the barn, but they seemed fine. They were happy to see me. They ate with gusto. I gave them an extra ration. They each jumped up on the milking stand. Mama settled in, happy as a clam, ate and then chewed her cud patiently while I milked her. Razzie, mmm, she has to get used to me milking her again. She kicked out a few times, even tried to lay down to keep me from milking her. Hey, settle down, girl. You're not the boss here. The trick was my firm, calm voice, complimented by an extra cup of feed. So Razzie is getting calmer. Her volume of milk is actually increasing day by day. I wash their udders and teats thoroughly before I milk them. I take down a bucket of clean, warm water. They have their own bar of wild oat soap. They prefer no scent. I put some on my fingers and work it up into a good lather. They seem to enjoy it. Hey, girls. Do you know that no goat in Western North Carolina is washed with soap of this quality? Hope you appreciate it. I think they do. Well, folks, I can't wash you every day like I do these goats, but I can sell you all the bars of wild oat soap that you want. Go to anashira.com. Enter discount code FALLSTORIES17. That's FALLSTORIES17 altogether for a 17% discount. And it's only good for listeners of this podcast. It's good until winter comes. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for my next episode of Stories from Anashira.